All right, have a seat. Awesome morning of worship already. Hey, let's, um, we're going to jump right in today, okay? So Frank has talked about, um, he's been talking about David and Solomon, and today we're going to dive right into Solomon's son, Rehoboam, okay? And you can find that story in 2 Chronicles 10 and 11, all right? Let's go back to Solomon for a few, okay? Solomon was the wisest king, and he had wealth beyond imagination. He also had over a thousand wives and concubines. I read that, and I thought, wow, all righty then. (laughs) That's crazy. But interesting fact from that, Rehoboam is the only son that we know of by name from Solomon. With a thousand wives and concubines, you think that'd be different, but... So Solomon has fallen, and and he's become unwise in his ending days. He's listening to the advice of his hundreds of plus lady friends. Sounds like a great, great idea, right? Yeah, no. He's following other gods. His heart is not after God's heart anymore. It's a bad place for Solomon to be. And Rehoboam is his son, and he's experiencing all of this as his son. Great wealth. We're talking like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos of today. People fearing the greatest, wisest leader of all time and witnessing his father compromise on major issues like new gods. So now Solomon has died, and Rehoboam is next in line to become the king of the 12 tribes. And everybody knew that Rehoboam was not Solomon. Solomon was feared and respected and admired. And Solomon's ending years of poor leadership and a divided heart was what Rehoboam, his son, mostly had in his mind. And as a rich ruler's son, I don't know about you, but it makes me think of like Richie Rich, just like a spoiled little entitled brat, right? Um, Imagine with me, he probably was completely shielded from all of the consequences of his father's bad decisions. Solomon is dead, and Rehoboam is going to be named the next king. So he travels to Shechem, um, where all of Israel has gathered to make him king. And this is the first sign that we know that Rehoboam is no Solomon. See, people would have traveled to make Solomon the king, but instead, he travels to the people. And he's there, and one of the elders, don't get this confused, the elder's name is Jeroboam. Jeroboam is there, and they come to the new king, Rehoboam, and they ask him for relief. Let's talk about Jeroboam for a second. Jeroboam was a so-called enemy of Solomon in the end years. And in Solomon's disobedience of God, God told Jeroboam through a prophet that he would be the ruler over part of the tribes. In fact, Solomon tried to have Jeroboam killed. So Jeroboam comes with his tribes to ask the new king, Rehoboam, for help. They basically say, Solomon was very hard on us, and we're, we're asking you to lighten our yoke. Essentially, Solomon was taxing his people in oppressive ways, 
because he had to have all these huge buildings. In fact, one palace wasn't big enough for 700 wives and 300 concubines, so we probably need to build a second palace that's greater and bigger and better, right? But how do you pay for that? He taxed the people in oppressive, crazy ways. They're actually saying, we we don't know exactly, but they think it's anywhere between 40 and 70% of your income went to Solomon. We're getting close to there in America, but we're not there yet. So um, the people are needing relief. And so Jeroboam and the people come and they ask Rehoboam for relief. And man, Rehoboam starts off great. He says, let me see, let me think about this. Come back in three days and I will answer you. That's an awesome start. No need for a hasty decision. No need to to have a quick decision right away. And then the next decision is just as good. He decides, hmm, who should I get advice from? I know. I'll go to my father's elders, the people who advised him and made him so wise, right? Probably a great place to start. So he goes to the elders and he asks them, and the elders reply and said to Rehoboam, you should lighten the yoke of the people and they'll serve you forever. Remember, Rehoboam was no Solomon and the elders knew it. They knew that if he made this one decision, it could impact his reign and his rule forever. So Rehoboam, took the first right steps, right? He's gone down this line, and let's just say that's where it ends. (laughs) See, he's now going down the wrong path. So you know when a decision comes your way and and you get advice, and it's not exactly what you want to hear? So then you go find somebody who's going to say what you want to hear? So let's go. Here goes Rehoboam. Where does he go? He, he walks right out, and he's looking for someone who's going to say what he wants to hear. See, reducing taxes meant a direct impact to his kingdom and his father's palace, which was his now. Reducing taxes meant that Rehoboam had to make sacrifices of his pleasures for the people. That would take humility and caring for the tribes way more than caring for his own selfish desires. So what did he do? He went and he asked his friends. The friends that honestly grew up in the palace and experienced all of the lavish royalty had to offer. Fine dining, fun lives, not much work, excessive living. Essentially, they were entitled people. And what would these friends say? Do you think they want to give up or sacrifice their comfort and their amazing living and their amazing lives for these lowly tribes? No way. So Rehoboam asks his friends, and of course they say, are you kidding me? You need to be feared like your father. You need to be seen like your dad. You deserve respect. You probably should have a bigger palace than your dad, right? Your father had all of this, and if you don't continue down this path, you're going to look weak. All of this was said because these friends really didn't care about Rehoboam. They cared about their lifestyle, 
And truthfully, Rehoboam really didn't want to give that up or he wouldn't have asked their advice. So at the end of that, he's been three days, he's asked advice, and he goes back to the tribes and to Jeroboam, and he says with great pride and arrogance, listen to this statement, it's crazy, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, and I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Holy cow, what a prideful response, right? Please, king, new king, lighten our loads. We can't take it anymore. We need relief. Please, please, please. And he goes, nope. In fact, you ain't seen nothing yet. So, the consequences of his decision. See, the people um, that he answered basically looked at Jeroboam, the person that asked on their behalf. Then they looked back at Rehoboam and they said, good luck, bro. Honestly, the visual that's in my mind is they gave the proverbial middle finger of the time to him. I know that sounds harsh, but I think that's probably about the feeling they had. Um, At this point, the tribes of Israel divided. And that still stands today. One decision, one bad decision on the part of Rehoboam broke apart a nation forever. Wow, one bad decision led to the divide of thousands and thousands of people. An entire nation. He even started down the right path, but he was led there. So that's our story for today. Whew, okay, we got past that. There's so much to look into this story, and especially about the life of Rehoboam. Um, I really believe there's one main point, and we'll get there, uh, but I want to talk about just a few other things that this story talks about. First, did Rehoboam have a chance to be successful? So this, this is also in 1 Kings as well. And in that account of the story in 1 Kings 12, 15, it says this. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nabat, through a prophet. Through a prophet, Jeroboam knew he was going to lead part of Israel and the nation would be divided. And it says the events were from the Lord. He knew this ahead of time, before before Rehoboam made these decisions. Gosh, it sounds to me like God knew Rehoboam was going to fail. Why was Jeroboam the one that asked to make the people's yoke lighter? Doesn't it seem like a tricky setup on the part of God? So let me tell you a little story about my family. Uh, we have Jackson, who's 13, and Christian, who's 11, and Bella, who's, who's 8. And um, when, when Christian and Jackson were little, probably three and one and a half, um, you know, Jackson, they're boys. They like to wrestle, right? They just like to have fun. And so Jackson would come out of nowhere, and the best way he knew how to wrestle with Christian was to just fly around the corner and flatten him. Flatten him and then wrestle. They'd have a little fun. Jackson and Christian are having a blast. It's all good, right? 
Yeah, well, that's happening over and over and over again. And every time it happens, Christian is a little less enthused about being obliterated on the floor by his brother. So it's happening over and over. And Lisa and I are saying over and over to Jackson, Jackson, one day he's going to be bigger than you and he's going to take you out right? We all know this is coming. So, but Jackson keeps doing it. It's the funnest thing to do. Run around the corner, obliterate and wrestle. And Christian, over time, he's doing it and doing it. And it's less and less and less and less. Until finally one day, Lisa and I are sitting in our living room. And here comes Jackson and he comes around the corner and Christian's over here playing with some blocks. And Jackson sees him and he's like, yes, perfect opportunity taking him down. So he runs around the corner. He runs over. He flattens Christian to the floor. He gets up. He goes back over to his Legos, and he starts playing. Here's the difference. Christian, you could see the fire of God in his eyes. He gets up. He's like turning into a bull, like his legs are moving. There's steam coming from his nose, and all we hear is, ah, and he runs across the room hits Jackson, and obliterates him. I mean, obliterates him. Needless to say, Jackson doesn't do that anymore. See, what we knew that day was that it was going to stop. We warned Jackson. We told him over and over, this is not a good idea. You shouldn't do this. You can wrestle, but don't start it that way. And what seems to be something bad really um, accomplished our parenting purpose. I could say it again and again to Jackson, but he had to go through it to understand it and believe it. What was perceived as bad, even you could say sin because we told him to stop, um, God used in his life. I'm not going to lie. As a parent, it was really fun to watch too. (laughs) So the bottom line is our God knows all of time. He's God. He knows our yes and our no answers from the beginning of time. We have the free will to make decisions, but at the end of the day, God is God and he knows our decisions. God used the state of first Solomon's heart and then the state of Rehoboam's heart and the heart of the people to accomplish his master plan. He did not interfere with man's free will He knew where they stood with the Lord, and he used it to accomplish his will. His will is the key phrase here. Second, Rehoboam listened to really horrible advice. Remember, he started off great. He went to the men who advised his father, who made him the wisest king ever. He spoke to them first. He asked their opinion. He listened. Let's just think about a couple things this morning um, about wise advice, okay? First, he went to the elders, which were outside of his inner circle of friends. Many times when we're faced with decisions or trials, our best advice comes from wise individuals who look into the situation from the outside. They have a different perspective. They're not clouded by the relationships or the outcomes. They are able to speak truth in love without bias. Where did Rehoboam get his bad advice? From the very people he called friends. 
the ones who were in the middle of the situation with him, the friends who would have been affected greatly should he have chosen the right answer. These were people his age, the people he hung out with in the palace, the ones who had everything to lose from the right decision and nothing to gain. And also, let's be honest, when he went and he asked for that advice and he didn't get what he wanted to hear, and then he went and got the advice he wanted to hear. Have you ever done that? I know I have. In certain situations, I have gone and searched for the person who's going to say exactly what I want to hear. That is such a bad idea. Don't waste your time. It's not advice. It's flattery. When you're making a decision, I believe the Holy Spirit can and will guide you to whomever the most godly response or decision in the circumstance if you ask. It's usually someone ahead of you in years and someone outside of the direct situation. God's answer is usually not the easy answer. Can I get an amen on that? I know in my life it's typically not the answer I want at first, but when you obey, you have peace and you get to watch God show up in amazing ways. All of these are really cool lessons to learn from this story, um, but I still believe there's a key here that we have to examine. I believe the crucial part of this story comes down to trust. Trust? What are you talking about? Why trust? All right, listen to this verse in 2 Chronicles 12, later in the story. It says, He did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. At the core, I believe the issue here is trust. He did not trust the Lord or the Lord's answers. None of us are like that. We always trust God first, right? Wrong. <laughs> you and I both know that's not the case. In fact, I believe many of us, including myself, believe in a God we don't fully trust. Let me say that again. I believe many of us, including myself, we believe in a God we don't fully trust. Trust is such an interesting concept. I think part of why we have so much problems or issues with trust is because at some point, everyone around us is going to fail. Right? The person you came with today, they're going to fail you at some point. Let's be real honest. You and I are going to fail the people around us at some point. And what does that do to your trust? It lessens it, and it lessens it. Every person in your life, I think you have a trust meter with, okay? Visualize this with me. You have some that are close to full on the trust meter. I'm hoping that one of those might be your spouse, but we all know you're probably going to let your spouse down at some point too. And then there are people who have hurt you over and over and over and over again. And you, your trust factor is probably at zero. The verse that I think really applies to us today is Proverbs um, 3, 5 to 6. 
Most of you have heard this in your lifetime. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So what do we trust? I heard this from a a famous preacher, a sermon this week, and I had to share it. So when you came in today and you walked down the aisle and you decided, I'm going to sit in this chair, you probably came down, you got on your hands and your knees, and you started inspecting every little bolt and screw and fiber of your chair, right? No, of course not. You trusted the chair was a good chair for you. You didn't sit there. You're not sitting there holding yourself up on the sides because you think you're going to fall through it. No, you naturally trust it. Of course, now there's people in here wondering if their chair is going to fall through. Don't worry, they're not. We're all good. Um, It wasn't on your mind because the chair has not broken on you in the past. You have no reason to believe it's going to break. You naturally trust it. So as people who have a hard time trusting others because we all fail, it's hard to trust. And this verse says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all ways, submit to him. So why did I say that we believe in a God we don't actually trust? Well, I think it's clear because God is not the first thing we turn to many times. Listen to this um, from Charles Swindoll. Listen to this list of how little we trust. When we worry, we don't trust. When we try to fix everything, we don't trust. When we go to men before seeking God, we don't trust. When we doubt the word of God, we don't trust. When you sin, you don't trust. When you manipulate situations, you do not trust. When you lie awake at night twisting and turning, you do not trust. When you turn to others first, you do not trust. When you take charge without praying and being led by the Spirit of God, you do not trust. When you cling to others to feel secure and loved, you do not trust. It could go on and on. It says trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not part, not small, but all. And that means don't lean on your own understanding. Look, you and I, we have a really good idea of our surroundings, of of our understanding. You can sit there and think of every trial and everything that's going to come your way, and then you can can figure out in your head, okay, if this comes, then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And you can worry yourself and do that over and over and over, but that's your understanding. That's not God's. You might even get some of those right. But you've got to trust in God. Trust in the God who sees everything in all of time, who knows what is best. Rehoboam trusted himself way more than he trusted God. I think that it's evidence in the fact that he received good advice from the elders, and then he turned and he said, Nah, let me find someone that 
I trust, who will say what I want to hear because I know best. He looked for the answer that best fit his understanding or his outcome. He trusted himself. Jesus is always after the heart. Where do you turn first when you're faced with a decision or a trial? Is God your first thought? Do you find yourself immediately playing out the scenarios of what could happen and how to deal with that? Do you find yourself running to your friends for advice immediately? Do you find yourself doubting the principles of God laid out so clearly in Scripture that you say you believe? Things like, God is good. God is faithful. God is right. God is kind. God is just. God is merciful. Do you find yourself manipulating circumstances to gain your desired outcome? Gosh, Rehoboam did many of these. It's a lack of trust. It's definitely not trusting the Lord with all your heart. You know, if I'm honest this morning, um, <clears throat> leading up to this message and preparing for this message, <clears throat> it's been difficult for me. Why? Because I stink at trusting God with all my heart. I have for years. Um, there's been circumstances and things in my life and relationships that have gone sour and things have not been right, and it's caused me to not trust. And I've taken that and I've placed it on God. In fact, one of these areas God has been working on in my life has been trust for many, many years. I think it's coming to a head. Thank you, Jesus. But um, I can hear him say, do you trust me? Mark, do you trust me when I allowed you to be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 7? Mark, do you trust me when I didn't fit in with those around you? Mark, do you trust me in your marriage? Mark, do you trust me when I led you away from worldly wealth into ministry? Mark, do you trust me when you come to your longed-after place of ministry for it all to fall apart? Mark, do you trust me when you're not the ideal American view of a man? You like music, and I could care less about football. Just being real. <laughs> Mark, do you trust who I will bring to work alongside you? Mark, do you trust me in broken relationships today? Mark, do you trust me in your financial needs? Mark, do you trust me in the death of a close friend? Mark, do you trust me when you're losing your house? Mark, do you trust me in your medical situations? Mark, do you trust me as a pastor when you're watching people go through deep, deep, horrifying suffering and grief? Mark, do you trust me when people attack you? Mark, do you trust me when you sin again and again and again? Mark, do you trust me when you know speak people are speaking bad of you behind your back? Mark, do you trust me when you're not hearing the praise that you want to hear? Mark, do you trust me with your children? Mark, do you trust me with your future? 
I can say in many, almost all of these situations, I failed. I stink at trusting. There's something broken with my trust meter. (laughs) And I bet if you're honest, I could say that your trust meter might be broken too. Why is that? Why do we turn to everything other than the one we know is perfect? It's trust. Let me tell you about the one that you can trust. This is our God, the one who led Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a furnace to be killed, and they walked out without even smelling like smoke. This is our God who led the Israelites out of captivity to be stranded in front of a sea with an army coming after them. You would have thought he would have brought like hundreds of boats to rescue him. No, he separates the waters so they can walk across on dry land and get to the other side. And then when they get there, the army comes after and the seas close and obliterate them. This is our God who led Moses down an alligator-infested river to be found by Pharaoh's wife and raised as royalty and to then be nursed by his very own mother. This is our God who led Daniel to obey and pray to God and be thrown into the lion's den, only to be found sitting among the lions as friends. This is our God who fed 5,000 plus people with two loaves of bread and five fishes. This is our God who walked on water. This is our God who calmed the seas in an intense storm. This is the God who raised Lazarus from the dead. This is our God who turned a Jesus-hating man named Saul into one of the greatest men for the name of Christ named Paul. This is our God who sent his perfect son to an imperfect world to be tortured, spit upon, ridiculed, and hung on a cross to die for you and me. This is our God who three days later brought Jesus back from the grave to conquer sin forever and create a way for you and I. This is our God who's coming again for all of those who believe in him to live with him for eternity. This is our God. How can we not trust him? He has not failed you or me. You may have changed your perspective or you've sinned in the doubt of his goodness or you manipulated your way out of an issue or you asked people the wrong advice. But he has not failed you. He can be trusted. Do you guys know what trust looks like? It's surrender and keeping your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. God, um, each of us today have a broken trust meter in some way. 
And it's, um, it's crazy that we believe all these things about you, and yet we choose not to trust you, to not put you first. Lord, I, um, I know in my life the different things that have happened um, to cause me to not trust in different ways, I've placed that on you, and you have not failed. That's my fault. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to break down walls today. I'm asking that we would learn to trust you with all of our heart. Lord, um, work and move in this place. Start with me. May I let go of my thoughts and ideas and surrender to your plan in my life. Not second, but right away. It's in the mighty, powerful, trusting name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Look, imagine with me, everyone sitting here today lived a surrendered life that fully trusted God with all of our hearts. Not only would he make your crooked paths straight, but we would have the ability to see God move in amazing, mighty ways. I don't know about you, but I want to see that. The altar's open this morning. Come, transact with God. Work with him on your trust. Let's worship.